if you take your scriptures and turn back to Jesus' parable in Luke 16 that Nathan read just a little earlier. Carl Menninger wrote a book titled, Whatever Became of Sin, in 1973. Twenty years later, it was followed up by a book entitled, Whatever Happened to Hell, by John Blanchard. Two years later, in 1995, Andrew Delbanco wrote a book titled, The Death of Satan, subtitle, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. The belief in the existence of hell, Satan, and sinful depravity is no longer a biblical absolute in many churches today. It is politically correct not to believe in it, and certainly hell is not culturally acceptable in the day in which we live. Thirty years ago, a religious historian not favorable to evangelical Christianity, Martin Marty was a professor at Chicago Divinity School, and he was at Harvard University preaching in a chapel message, and he delivered a message titled, Hell Disappeared, No One Noticed. Many suggested, I should, Marty suggested that if evangelicals, meaning us, took seriously what Scripture said about eternal punishment, then someone who had a voice should notice and should have said something. That's from someone who doesn't even believe the Bible. According to polls just a few years ago, 81% of Americans believed in heaven. And fully 80 out of the 81% thought that that's exactly where they were going when they died. In comparison... 61% of Americans believed in hell, but less than 1% actually thought that they might even go there when they died. (laughs) Albert Moeller said this, There is a vast majority of people in America today and even in our churches that don't believe in the actual existence of hell as being a real place any more than they believe in Atlantis or Oz. Even in our churches today, you'd have to admit that very infrequently do you ever hear anyone preaching about hell because hell has fallen on bad times. It's really out of fashion. And mainly because that secular philosophies and ideologies have influenced key theological and biblical doctrines in our churches today. And now today we stress individualism over authority and human psyche over moral absolutes. In our consumer culture... And all the things that have gone with it, including the rise of psychology and the philosophy of existentialism, where it's about your feelings and experience, all of those have dumped literal buckets of water on hell, says John MacArthur. I actually recently, in preparation for this sermon this week, read a pastor who was asked why the doctrine of hell has gone missing. He said this, it just isn't sexy anymore. A seminary professor said this in recent years when asked the same question about where is hell. He said, it's just too negative. Churches are under enormous pressure to be consumer-oriented. He said, churches today feel the need to be appealing rather than demanding. This is obviously borne to light in a very clear way by a guy named Rob Bell who a few years ago wrote a book called Love Wins. In it, he writes this, and I quote, It is absurd to think that a loving God would even damn anyone to an eternal punishment. 
Unfortunately, as you read all of the articles and books, all of the pundits and religious experts who think that they know all of these things have failed to check in with King Jesus about what he says on the subject. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than he ever did heaven. And he does so perhaps in the most clear way in the parable that we read before us this morning as our text. Most commentators think that this is one of what Luke calls his reversal stories. All throughout the book of Luke from the beginning to the end, it's about things that end up being the opposite of what you might think that they should be. Mary's magnificent when she realizes that she is going to bring Christ into the world. Jesus coming into the world for her meant this, that everything would be reversed, that the rich would be brought low and the low would be exalted. And she shares that in her Magnificat in chapter 1. Jesus, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, says that you are blessed for all the things that everyone in the world thought you would be cursed for. And you are cursed for all the things the world thought were blessings. It's a complete reversal. The sinful woman at Simon the Pharisee's house in Luke Luke chapter 8, she's the one that Jesus gives commendation, not the religious Pharisee. It's the people who are invited to the banquet. It's not the ones that everyone would invite. It's the ones that no one would want. Those are the ones in Luke's gospel that end up being invited to the great banquet. Luke 18, it's the tax collector that goes down to his house justified instead of the Pharisee who thought he had it all together with God. I mean, over and over again, all throughout the gospel of Luke, here's what's true. It's the reverse of everything that you think. You see, Jesus' mission impossible, which is our series, is basically Jesus coming to tell you that he's going to reverse what you think. He's going to reverse what you believe about what it means to be right with God for those who are in heaven or those who are in hell. See, I believe this morning that it's impossible to escape eternal punishment, the eternal punishment of hell by God, unless Jesus comes into your life personally with a complete reversal of everything that you are and know. And I want to take a look at that. In fact, our parable breaks it down very simply for us. It's very uh, antithetical in the sense that it's just two things. It's two sides of the same coin, and we're going to look at both of them. So we're going to see the contrast, number one, in the rich man and Lazarus in this life, contrasted with the rich man and Lazarus in the life to come. And I want you, as you read the scriptures this morning, as you have read it already, I should say, and as we hear about it, I want you to put yourself in the story because that's the idea of parables, isn't it? That's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to see which one of the two people in the parable really best and aptly describes ourselves. So let's look at them one at a time. The rich man and Lazarus in this life. The two stories, if you read the whole context, are linked together. Beginning in 16.1, look at your scriptures, in 16.19, they begin with the same phrase, verse 1 and 2, there was a rich man, because these two stories are interrelated. Jesus is going to say at the end of the first story in 16.13 about your treasure. He's going to tell you about how you spend your money, because how you spend your money says volumes about who you really are, and in Jesus' words, what the real master of your heart is, what your real treasure is. So he wants you to ask the question, does money serve you or do you serve money? Because it makes a difference, a difference in your eternity. It, It shows what you and who you are really on the inside. And for this man, 
who is the rich man in our story, probably referring to a Pharisee, because if you look in the context again in 1614, can you look there? He says the Pharisees were literally money lovers. So he's going to tell a story about a money lover, a rich man, and a beggar. And he frames what the rich man is described in being by his wealth. Look what it says, verse 19. He was clothed in purple and fine linen. These are the clothing or the, this is the wardrobe of a king. Purple was royalty. Fine linen were only worn by the people who had very much money. This would be an Elon Musk kind of a guy. This is a guy who had everything in his closet. He had the walk-in closets. He had the shoe racks. He had everything, every designer clothes, everything you could possibly think of. This was that guy. He had clothes, linen clothes, royal clothes. He lived like a king. That's what his wardrobe was all about when you opened his closets. But when you opened his cupboards, it was the same. Because the Bible says he feasted sumptuously every day. See, not only the clothes of a king, but the food of a king. The average person, and it's great, it's interesting to study, the average person in Jesus' day, on each and every day, only ate three things. Bread, soup, and fruit. That was just about it. The only time they ever ate meat is if they were invited to a wedding or a very special occasion. So they were very austere in what they had as far as their provisions goes. But not this man. In great contrast, literally, not only to the poor man, but to just about everyone else in that culture, he ate a feast every day. The word feasted is the same word used in the parable previous to this of the lost son, the prodigal son, where it says it's time to celebrate, the father says, when the child comes home. And that's our word. He celebrated every day. Literally, the man had a party at his house every day. I mean, he had a banquet that you can't even imagine in his day. I mean, they rolled out the red carpet. He had everything possible. In fact, in Luke's gospel, people who eat like this are people who have no clue and are not looking at all toward any coming judgment. Luke 12, 19 says, this is the attitude of people that were in the Noah's flood generation. They were eating and drinking and celebrating because that was their lifestyle. That was their pursuit, but they have no thought of hell or judgment or standing before God. And the Bible says, if you look at the verse as well, it says that this guy lived in a gated community because Lazarus sat outside of his gate every day. And I can tell you this, it was unique. This man's house was unreal because cities themselves, temples, palaces, these were the things that had gates on them. Houses did not. This man's house was incredible. I mean, it would have been in every magazine you could possibly, it would go on all the floors, 30 rooms, whatever it was that he had. It was magnificent. And mainly it was magnificent because it kept the riffraff like Lazarus out. See, there are contrasts. It's a study of contrast, is it not? The poor, crippled, beggar man, completely opposite of the rich man. The rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen, but Lazarus, in contrast, he was clothed in sores. See, this man had a mansion, but Lazarus is sitting in front of the gate on the street. This rich man had abundance so much that he could 
eat all the time whatever he wanted. But Lazarus, it says in our text, desired crumbs. We would say, hey, if the guy would just give me a few leftovers, I think that Lazarus would have been very happy to go dumpster diving if this guy had one. They're so different, completely opposite of one another, in fact. But interestingly, I don't know if you noticed it when Nathan read the text, but Lazarus is mentioned by name, and that is unique in Jesus' parables because of all the ones that are recorded in Scripture, this is the only parable that Jesus ever tells that one of the main characters is actually given a name. And the name is Lazarus. It's the Hebrew name Eleazar, very popular name. It was Abraham's number one servant's name. It was this one of son of Aaron's sons were named Eleazar. And it means in Hebrew, God is my help. Interestingly, though, this guy, it says, was laid, literally thrown in front of the gate every day. He had somebody, perhaps family, perhaps friends, maybe someone who was merciful, who just came every day and parked him literally outside the gate, put him down there, and he stayed there all day, every day. So Lazarus would have been walked by and seen by the rich man every day single day. Staying there was his hope that maybe the rich man would give him some alms for a beggar and a man who was crippled. He couldn't walk there on his own. He had to be laid there on his, in his life. You know why? Because that's his whole life. His whole life was being helped by someone else. But you'd think, though, wouldn't you, that if the rich man, I mean, I'm sorry, if Lazarus's name is mentioned that you think the rich man's would also, but it's not. Why? Because the point is that this is his identity. It's not his name. It's his wealth. See, Lazarus is someone who has God's help, people helping him just to get by. But this man is all about self-help. That's his identity. That's what his money, that's what his treasure has done for him. See, he's not about God help. He's about self-help. And what we see in the next scenario when he ends up in hell is the result of that, that he doesn't need God's help, or so he thinks he doesn't. But it's not over. That's not all the Bible says about their contrast. The Bible says, and literally in the Greek, moreover, and it's the word but or even. In other words, it's going to get worse. It's not just these things, but the dogs come and lick his sores. Now, today we might think, oh, that's nice. The dogs are helping him out. Well, they didn't see dogs the same way that we do. They wouldn't have had pet dogs in their house. They wouldn't even have eaten them as some other countries do. But they were unclean. You would not want to be touched by a dog, nor would you touch a dog, because they also had infectious diseases. Lazarus is so weak in the story, unlike the man who's rich, that he can't even fend off the dogs. In every way possible, economically, socially, and every other way, this man is as low as it possibly can get in his life. And then the equalizer the equalizer. The Bible says, and they both died. The rich man was buried, and I'm sure that it was well attended. It was a lot of to do. A lot of people came. But I'm sure that when Lazarus was buried, it was the complete opposite. Maybe, maybe a couple people, maybe the two people who carried him to his place every day outside the gate, but none other, certainly not the rich man. I'm sure he didn't even realize Maybe for a while that he was gone. 
See, they were opposites in life, but hear me, they were also opposites in death. The rich man and Lazarus in the next life. Verse 22 and 23 says that the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. Can I tell you straight out this morning, death is not the end. I preach funerals and often introduce my sermons at funerals with Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 2. It says what? It says that it's good to go to the house of mourning rather than the house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral than a party. Why? Here's what Solomon says in his wisdom. Because this is the end of all men and the living will take it to heart. You know why? We don't like to go to funerals and why we have so many flowers. We don't want to think about death. But I can tell you this, we need to this morning because it's not the end. It is not the end. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And it is good for us. It is wise for us to think about when we die, where will we be? See, Lazarus gets an angelic escort. See, the only people that carried him in his first life, can I say it that way? The only people that carried him in this life were those who were putting him outside the gate. Oh, but not in the next. Oh, completely the opposite. Now he's carried by angels. Now he's in the place of honor, and the rich man is in a place of dishonor. See, now everything is completely reversed. He is close to Abraham. And the Bible says he's in Abraham's bosom. It's the same term used when John laid back on Jesus at the Last Supper and said it laid on his bosom. It's a a term of intimacy. It's a term of relationship. See, and that's crazy, and I want to tell you in a minute, is because this guy thought that he had a good relationship with Abraham. He had none. But Lazarus did. And Lazarus is the one now that is rich in the Rich man is the one that has become poor. You know why? Because his wealth no longer counts for anything. In verse 23, perhaps the most stark words about this parable is these two words in Hades. Sheol, Hades is a compartment in the Old Testament where you died. It was split in two with a chasm between it. Sheol, Hades, hell was the place of torment and separation from God. But Abraham's bosom was the pre, can I say, pre-heaven part of it. And the Bible says that he lifted up his eyes. I'll see, before, Lazarus had to lift up his eyes from sitting in front of his gate to see the rich man go by every day. But now it's completely reversed. Now the rich man has been brought low. And to see Lazarus, he has to lift up his eyes. And in doing so, he is in torment. Notice, it is a physical, real personal torment. It is unceasing. It is permanent. There is no post-mortem evangelism. There is no getting saved after you die. What you decide for yourself in this life is what you will live in in eternity. The rich man who feasted, see how it's been reversed? He now just desires the drip of water from someone on the end of their finger. I don't know about you, but I've been really thirsty at times. I've run long distances in the heat. I have never thought that someone would satisfy me if I got a drip from the end of their finger. That's what hell is like. The rich man is dishonored where 
Now he had everything at his table, but now it's Lazarus who's at Abraham's table. He's the one who has the banquet. He's the one who's feasting. It's completely different in now in their lives. And if you read verses 24 and 25, it says this, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. It's too late for that. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish, torment in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime, listen, underline it, please, you received good things. You have to ask the question, don't you? I mean, I've laid out the contrast for you as best as I can. But you have to ask questions about why it took place this way. What happened to bring the rich man to such an eternal punishment? You might think, just reading it and skimming over it, that the rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. It's not true. See, one could, you could say that that might be the case, but that isn't what it is. What was it? Why is the rich man in hell? Good things. That's why. What do you mean, Pastor Walker? Well, this man had what I call a disordered love. See, he was not condemned to hell because he was rich, but because he lived in a coma of callousness that his wealth produced in his heart. See, he became consumed with his own joy. He lived for the good things that he had, the leisures, the pleasure. He failed to show compassion to a man who was suffering every day right outside of his gate. You see, Abraham reminds him, remember this. I want you to remember. I want you to know why you're here, he says. Remember in your lifetime, and it was longer See, you had the good things. It's not wrong to have good things. By and large, compared to a lot of people in the world, we have good things. Homes, cars, houses, retirement, food. We have abundance. We have have all of these things. It's not the having of them. It's when they have us. See, it's the pursuit of them. He loved them. He loved the things more than he loved Lazarus. He delighted in his luxuries. He delighted in what benefited himself while all the while ignoring. You know, it doesn't say that every day he went by and yelled at Lazarus. He didn't kick Lazarus. He didn't didn't do anything wrong. He did nothing to Lazarus. Nothing. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 talks about last day lovers. That the kind of lifestyle that people live before Jesus comes back includes this. Pleasure lovers, self-lovers, lovers, money lovers, lovers, but not God lovers. Does that mean, Pastor Walker, that I can get to heaven if I just do a little better job using my money for others? No. You've seen Scrooge, right? The Christmas Carol? Scrooge was a miser. Bah humbug was his motto. And he didn't use his money for anybody but himself, but he had a change of heart, didn't he? He turned over a new financial leaf because he had three ghosts visit him one night. You know the story. And eventually he ends up as his future grave marker and sees how he dies and what people think of him. And so he gets up that morning 
right? And he goes down and spends his money and gets the turkey or whatever it was. And he gets that and he goes over and gives money to Bob Cratchit. And he's nice to Tidy Tim. And that's the moral of the story, is it? Use your money. Think of other people. And you're set. It won't work. That's not what this parable is talking about. Our job is not to go help Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim a little bit more so that we can ease our religious conscience. No, what the Bible's talking about is a necessity of a complete reversal in your values. Completely different in what you treasure in your heart. It's coming to see Jesus for who he really is. It's coming to value him as the pearl of great price. It's the one who is the treasure above all things. The one that can free you by his grace from the love of money and give you the love that you are always designed for, and that is God and others. You see, he had a disordered love. It was the things that he pursued. It's what controlled his heart. There was no room for God in his heart. There was no room for Lazarus in his heart because he occupied all the space. But that's not the only reason he was there. This man lifted up his eyes in torment and hell, not only because he had a disordered love, but because he had a dependence on religiosity. All throughout the post-mortem conversation between Abraham and this rich man, he likes to call Abraham his father. Verse 24, look at your text, verse 27, verse 30. Three different times he says, Father Abraham. And one time he just says, Father. Right? Why? Because he's Jewish. He's Jewish. And in his dialogue, it's obvious that he thought somehow that his Jewishness, his religiosity... And being identified ethnically with Abraham would somehow gain him some favor and merit before God on Judgment Day. In fact, Abraham actually in 1625 says back to him, child. So he wasn't, it wasn't that he wasn't, it wasn't that it was a lie or deception or he wasn't religious at all, like the Pharisees. They knew God, they were the children of Abraham But God is saying to us in this text, he's asking us a question, and it's the one that Luke poses to us, and it's crucial for all of us if we're going to know the difference between being in hell and heaven. The question is, what makes someone a true child of God? Theologically, what makes someone a real son or daughter of Abraham? In Luke's gospel, the only gospel that uses this phrase, which I think points to this story, is there are two examples of one that's called a daughter of Abraham and one person who's called a son of Abraham. But like all the reversal stories in Luke, you're surprised about who they are. The woman in chapter 13 and verse 16, Jesus says she had an issue of blood for 18 years. She was unclean. She couldn't go in synagogues. She couldn't go to the temple. She was outcast. She had been considered cursed by her society, a sinner. But Jesus heals her and says, and she also is a daughter of Abraham, not the one that you might think. See, it wasn't her Jewishness. She was this, but what she needed more than that was healing from Jesus. The other one, of course, is more familiar to us. In Luke 19, 9, it's the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus comes and Jesus says, come down, I have to stay at your house today. And he has lunch with him. And over lunch, he totally changes his mind about money and how he's ripped people off or distorted people. And he wants to give back more than is necessary required by Leviticus to do so. Why? Because when you come to know Jesus, it changes your treasure. Just like it did for Zacchaeus, see. 
And the Bible says that salvation has come to this house today, and he also is a son of Abraham. See, it wasn't enough to be a son of Abraham. You had to have salvation come into your life and house through Jesus Christ. See, you could be here today, and you could say this, oh, I think I'm eternally secure. You know why? Because I'm a Baptist, or because I'm a Lutheran, or perhaps I'm a Catholic, or something like that. And see, you're depending on your religiosity See, if I do the sacraments, if I go through the rituals, if I show up on Sunday morning's church, if I put a little money in the plate, see, he was thinking, I'm eternally secure. I'm a child of Abraham. What more do I possibly need? And he didn't know that he needed so much more. Listen to this text. In Luke 3, 8, talking about a son or daughter of Abraham, a real child of Abraham, John the baptizer preaches this. Hear me. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You know what he's saying? Don't you dare look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm religious. I go to this church. I have this background. Do you know who I am? He says, God can take stones and make children beyond you. He says, don't depend Or don't let your eternal security be based on your religion, your denomination, or how good you might think that you are. John the baptizer says it's not sufficient. It isn't enough. Listen to the Apostle Paul, Galatians 3, 7. Therefore know that those only who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Galatians 5, 6, he reads this. Paul says, for in Christ there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but faith working through love. It is not your your, your ethnicity. It is not your religiosity. It is not your religious affiliation. It is do you have a relationship by faith in Jesus Christ alone? That's what the rich man's problem was. And in hell, by the way, people do not change their mind. He still wants Lazarus and thinks of Lazarus as a servant and asks Abraham to have Lazarus do his bidding for him. You go back and warn my father. Have him bring water and put it, give it to me. See, he says he's never changed his idea. He hasn't changed his idea about how being right with God. We don't. We don't wake up and say, oh, how foolish I could have been. If we don't wake up now, we do not wake up ever. See, that was the rich man's problem. Religious. His father was Abraham, but his faith, it didn't change him. Can I tell you, the faith that justifies always sanctifies. If it doesn't change you, it hasn't been real. And the rich man, he did not have any works that were keeping with repentance. He shared no food, he gave no clothes, he gave no money because he had no change, he had no salvation. Well, Pastor Walker, if religion isn't good enough, then what is sufficient to get to heaven? Do I need some sort of existential spiritual experience, like a sign or some sort of miraculous event? See, that's what the rich man thought, because at the end of the text, you read it for yourself. He says, Abraham, give them someone like Lazarus. Bring someone back from the dead, a miraculous thing, things that no one has seen before. You send him back from the dead... And my five brothers who are living the same life I'm doing, they won't have to come to this awful place of terrible condemnation. But you know what? Abraham's response is stunning. You know what he says? 
He says, look at verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets twice, Shema. Let them hear them. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, though someone be raised from the dead, they won't be convinced. It won't work. They saw all of Jesus' miraculous things. They saw all the wonderful deeds that he did, all the supernatural things, and they still were unbelievers. Here's what he says, Moses and the prophets. Twice he says it. That's what someone believes. Let me tell you this. The only way that you can escape the eternal punishment of hell is by believing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is not what you had in a dream or what you thought you had, some existential experience. And everyone, because we're seeking feelings, we're all looking for something like that today to get us through the next day. That isn't eternal life. Eternal life is in Moses and the prophets. That's where faith comes from. But I've got good news for you. There was someone who did come back from the dead. Someone who did the impossible, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he died on the cross and he rose again. See, he did come back and he does come back and he tells us, listen, you can be saved not because of how good you are, not because of your religiosity, not because somehow your good works will outweigh your bad or something to do with your religiosity, none of those things. He says it's because you put your faith and trust in me that I died in the place of sinners and rose again so that you could have eternal life. It's interesting how the book of Luke ends, and I'll also end my sermon there. Jesus is walking on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection, the most glorious event there has ever been. And he's walking with a man named Cleopas, and most likely his wife, and he's talking about them, and they're sad because they don't realize who Jesus is on the road and what he's done. And Jesus says in Luke 24, 27, and beginning with, listen, Moses and the prophets. Oh, he just takes right back up from Luke 16. The greatest event in all of history, the resurrection of the Son of God himself. And he's the one talking about it. And here's what he says. You want to know surety? Even beyond that, you listen to Moses and prophets because that's what talked about me. See, my death was prophesied in Moses and the prophets. My resurrection was prophesied in Moses and the prophets. And he ends in verse 44, and he says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets must be fulfilled. Even Jesus himself, who was raised from the dead, says, You know, you know how you can know truth? You know how you can escape hell? You know how you can be saved? The word of God. It's the word of God. So, Oh, that's what you need this morning, my friend. Perhaps that's the reason in God's kindness and mercy and providence that he brought you here and his sovereignty so that you could repent. See, he wants you to come today and say, not add on to your religiosity, not tack on some better habits on the outside of your life. No, a reformation of who you are, a reformation and a complete change of your values and your treasure, seeing Jesus for who he is, the only hope of heaven. And he died for sinners so that you could be redeemed. Oh, see, will you believe the word of God, the powerful gospel of God, the power of God to salvation? That's the power that this man needed. It was too late for him, but it is not too late for you. And by the way, as we close, can I tell you this? Saints of God, it's missions month. Can I tell you this? What do people need around you more than anything else who are dying and going to hell? They need you to tell them Moses and the prophets. 
We need to be bold in sharing the word of God. It is our world's only hope. That is our mission. No longer impossible, but possible because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Let's close in prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around. When I was a boy, 12 years old, an evangelist by the name of Glenn Shunk came to my church. On a Friday night of special meetings, he preached on hell. And part of his message was this parable. I'll never forget because it scared me. Does it scare you? It should. It should. It's not the best motivation to get saved, to be scared into it. But God often uses our fear of him. In fact, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit's job is to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. Perhaps this morning you're here and you haven't really given much thought at all to what happens when you die. One day they'll have a burial and it will be yours and mine And we will lift up our eyes, but the question remains, where will we be? Who do you find yourself in that story more relating to? Maybe you came here this morning thinking you could be good enough to get to heaven. Maybe it was your religiosity. Maybe it's because your parents were religious. And maybe you had all these kinds of ideas. But as you hear this text this morning, you understand this. That is not enough. Not because I'm a sinner. It's not enough because I'm a sinner. That's why. Can you say this morning, I need a Savior, and Jesus is my only hope. That he died on the cross and rose again. He's my only hope of forgiveness. I want to be moved by the Spirit of God to heed the Word of God. I want to come and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, Would you say, Pastor Walker, here's my hand. Pray for me. I do not know that heaven is my home, but I want to. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to know that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I don't know that today, but I need to know. I need to hear what the Word of God has to say about that more. Would you just slip your hand up, and I'll pray for you in a moment, and we close our service. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? I don't know. If I die today, I don't know. Thank you, sir. I don't know where I'd go. I honestly don't. Can I tell you this? When I was 12, when they couldn't give the invitation fast enough, my Sunday school teacher in sixth grade was at the front, and he came and showed me how I could have life eternal. Oh, I, I couldn't imagine hesitating with such the most important decision you'll ever make as God works in your heart. Others, would you just say, Pastor Walker, pray for me. I don't know about my eternal destiny. I don't know, but I want to know. I desire to know. I need to know. Pray for me. Would you also slip your hand up and join these ones? Anyone? If you're here this morning as a saint of God and you would say, Pastor Walker, I've been given grace. I've been given forgiveness. Jesus has redeemed me, has freed me from my sin, the love of money. Are you showing it? Do you demonstrate it? Do you feel the weight of people dying and going to hell around you every single day? Oh, do we feel that church of God? Because we'd have courage and boldness and love 
to talk to people, to build relationships with people, to give the gospel. How many would be say, Pastor Walker, this morning, I know Jesus and he has saved me, but I need a far greater burden and love for the lost who are dying apart from him. Far more, I'm asking God to do that work in my heart that I too would have a love for them as he did. Would you just slip your hand up and I'll pray for you this morning as well? All over. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to pray in a moment with your heads bowed and eyes closed. And if you raised your hand a few moments ago, indicating that you need Jesus as your Savior, and there are quite a number of you, please do not worry because it's the voice of hell. Don't worry what anyone will think of you, what you're coming for. Put that aside. Come and let someone show you this morning from the Scriptures how you can have life eternal in Jesus' name. Father, the only reason we can call you Father is because of Jesus, your Son. By faith, he has made us true sons and daughters of Abraham, true children of God. Blessed be your name. For those who raised their hand a few moments ago, and there were a number of them, you've seen their hands and their hearts, and you know them and their desire. I pray, Father, that you would give them brokenness, repentance, humility, that immediately they would come and let someone here today show them how they can have life forever. Work only as you can. Do the impossible, God, that your people may stand in awe of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.